Thanks for listening to Code Switch. StoryCorps travels the country collecting the wit, wisdom, and poetry in the stories of everyday people. The StoryCorps podcast showcases these unscripted stories about real life. Listen in and discover meaning in the words of someone you might not notice walking down the street. Find the StoryCorps podcast now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. We're still trying to make sense of last week, if that's even possible. Here's a quick recap. In the space of a few days, videos of two different black men getting shot to death by the police, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, drove thousands of protesters into the streets across the country. And at one of the protests in Dallas, this happened. Michael Johnson apparently used his military training and detailed planning in order to pull off an ambush attack on police officers in Dallas. After killing five Dallas police officers and injuring seven, Michael Johnson was himself killed by a robot-delivered bomb. Johnson told negotiators he was targeting white cops in retaliation for the deaths of black people at the hands of the police. On our podcast Extra last week, we talked to the Harvard historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad about how that changed the conversation happening in the media. He wrote the book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern America. The conversation was about the need to change police culture. It was about putting a stop to excessive use of force so these incidents don't occur over and over again. And I have to say, 24 hours later, to me, I feel like the conversation has changed to the condemnation of the killing of the police officers in Dallas. And I'm wondering, how do we have both those conversations at the same time? And do you think we are having both those conversations at the same time? First of all, I think we must have both those conversations at the same time. So we ought to be clear about what should be happening. But I also think that there's an imbalance uh, in who speaks in terms of the capacity to understand that that police violence, uh, as is felt by African-Americans and Blacks more generally in America cannot continue. That That's a hard stop. Mm-hmm. The problem is that uh, there are significant pockets of the majority population of whites in America who, on one hand, are ambivalent about whether or not uh, those African-Americans and others who have been killed uh, is, is somehow justified. And juries and judges have essentially co-signed on that belief. Consequently, uh, at the other extreme, we have a a heroism attached to the occupation of policing where people who are police officers are wrapped in the cloth of patriotism as making sacrifices on behalf of the nation. And this has eliminated the possibility that we can have a both-and conversation Mm -hmm. uh, because of the scale of the unwillingness to come to terms with some basic facts about policing. And this is not just about when police officers shoot or use excessive force. It's also about the culture of policing and the way in which communities are actually treated on a day-to-day basis. There's so much to unpack here. Mm. So we're back with more. And here's a warning. We're still not going to get into everything in this episode, trust. But we are going to talk to the police. And Gene, I'm not going to lie, this has been playing in my head on a loop for days now. That 
song right there, that was The Sound of the Police by KRS One. I hate the age of Shireen, but that song came out almost a quarter century ago. And we're still talking about the same stuff, about how black people have suffered at the hands of the police for generations. And we're still asking when it's going to stop. Today, we're going to talk about and with the people that live on both sides of this debate, though. Mm-hmm. Black cops. No KRS one. We're not playing that again. Anyway, um, Dallas Police Chief David Brown, he's African-American. Mm-hmm. And even before this tragedy, David Brown's gotten a lot of credit for improving police and community relations in that city. Here he is on Tuesday at a memorial service with President Obama, quoting Stevie Wonders as to express officers love for the people they serve. And I've got to say. Always. I'll be loving you always. And there's no greater love than this that these five men gave their lives for all of us. And David Brown, who we just heard, is a member of an organization called the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, or NOBLE. I spoke with the head of that organization, Gregory Thomas. We are executives in policing, right? So Mm -hmm. I'll give you a couple of examples. We are the police chief in Miami Gardens, Detroit, Michigan. Miami Gardens was where Trayvon Martin is from, right? Right, Mm -hmm. Miami Gardens. Detroit, Michigan, Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. Durham, North Carolina, and we are the police chief in Dallas, Texas. So we are expert enough to say what should be done in policing. I don't care who you want to put against us. We can push back with some expertise. But the twist there is we are also black, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been policed. We live in neighborhoods that have been policed. We have neighbors who have been policed. We have been stopped and frisked. I've been stopped and frisked. We all have been through that experience. And right before we sat down to talk, he was actually at the White House meeting with Vice President Biden. A meeting that President Obama crashed. Yeah, he just apparently just walked in the room and they ended up talking for two hours about everything. And in that meeting, Thomas said that law enforcement has to do a better job of acknowledging the pain that communities and families go through after high profile incidents like these happen. We understand that because that could have been one of our kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And not saying we're justifying the shooting or not justifying the shooting. We are saying that there's a pain there that law enforcement has to acknowledge mm-hmm. and we caused it, whether or not the person in question was uh, a part of the reason why it happened, mm-hmm. it's irrelevant. Sure. We caused the pain. So my point there in the meeting was we have to acknowledge the pain, and the president agreed. He called everybody to the table and said, we have to walk out here realizing that if you just went a little bit closer towards acknowledging the pain, things may be better out there. Because mm-hmm. others won't say that. I could say it because Noble is established as an organization that has been out there on the forefront of these issues for a long time. They're going to stay out there, too. I have no problem doing that. But I, see, acknowledging the pain does not mean that you necessarily are at fault mm-hmm. or have culpability. I didn't say that. It's not about liability. It's about you are involved in this, and the way we're going to get past this issue we're in right now is leadership from our organizations and from our members that are going to go out there and, and not allow their partners who they know are corrupt, who mm-hmm. they know are abusing people, black, white, green, I don't care what color they are, if they're abusing people, call them out. Uh, set the standard that you're not going to accept that. If you're a police chief, do the exact same thing. Weed them out. Fire them. Get them off the police force. Because if you don't, what you'll get is what we have right now. People just being apathetic towards police and not supportive. Were you alone in that room with the president and the vice president calling for like acknowledgement? Or no. Was it was anyone else? No. The, the entire, the other nine leaders of police organizations were there too did they agree with you were they all, all other they they, they shook their head the they shook their head and mm-hmm. I, I i don't know that they agreed with my stance because my stance was not what they were doing some of them were trying to you know lay the uh 
the faults of what's going on in this issue on behalf of their members at the feet of the White House. Hmm. And I wasn't going to do that. You know, I don't care who's in the White House. I'm not doing that because, you know, as I, as I analogized in the um, the meeting, I said, you're, you're giving this to a entity that's at 20,000 feet. We're on the tarmac. It's our issue, hmm. right? So let's deal with it from here first, right? Acknowledge the pain and work on weeding out those members of your organization that are out there doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, again, if you say, you know, 99% of the um, the police force that you're in charge of are not corrupt, that may be the reality, but the perception is that's not true. Right. right. So you have to deal with the perception, not the reality. And I make sure that was clear to them there. And I could say it in a different voice because, you know, again, I get it. You know, I'm a Brooklynite born and raised in Brooklyn, still sure. live in Brooklyn now, mm-hmm. right? So to my earlier point about being stopped and frisked, this happened when I was 14 years old. Okay. I mean, uh, it hasn't happened much more as I've been an adult, but in the instance that I'm referring to when I was 14, a friend, of my, a friend and I were down in the Delancey Street area, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Delancey in Lower Manhattan. Uh, going, LES, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, going shopping for clothes after having get, gotten that precious summer youth court check. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we, you know, we have to go spend that money and, and buy the latest pants or the latest hat. So we're down near um, the Williamsburg Bridge, and there's a bus that goes over the bridge that will take you back into Brooklyn where you catch another bus to go further into Brooklyn. Sure. So we're, uh, remember like it was yesterday, we're sitting in this restaurant. Yeah, I think it was Blimpy's actually eating a hero. And here comes the bus, right? Mm-hmm. So the truth of the matter is, I, you know, I'm an athlete. I was running track and playing football then, so the bus was no match for me. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I haven't met a bus to this day I can't catch. So uh, I make the move to catch the bus, and I get there before my buddy was a little bit slower. And mm-hmm. and for the record, much taller than me. If I'm six one now, he's like six six. So it's the same kind of right. you know, space of uh, of height, just to give you perspective. So Too we get big, to muscular, athletic black dudes right. chasing the bus. There you go. Yeah. All right. So we get to the bus. And so I get into the uh, stairwell of the bus. I hear somebody say, hey, you in the blue hat, step back off the bus. Is that you? No, that's my buddy. Okay. Instinctively, I kept going because mm-hmm. I you know, wasn't talking to me. I didn't know who that was coming from. And then until they said, hey, you in the uh, brown pants, you two, step down off the bus. And I turn around and it's a barrel of a gun of a, a police officer and, you know, an undercover officer at that point, a detective. Wow. With their guns drawn. So we back down off the bus and we are then directed to go against the fence and uh, and I, I tell you I was a rookie on the mic as I would say at that point I had not been stopped by police I sure. had any contacts wherein my, my buddy for, for whatever reason had some before so he's instructing me as I'm as we instruct young people now mm-hmm. like how to comport yourself when stopped by police he's doing that you know mm-hmm. what was he saying stay still my man mm-hmm. don't turn around because I'm asking like what are you stopping me for mm-hmm. right I'm against the fence and I'm saying what are you stopping us for we didn't do anything we're running for the bus and actually by coincidence on the bus are people who are saying the exact same things they saw us running they were laughing as we were you know, trying to catch the bus and seeing me get there before he was and mm-hmm. they saw the whole episode going on they saw it as sure. a sincere us trying to catch the bus uh, move rather than us doing something criminal so I'm still you know again trying to gather myself and saying, what do we do, what do we do? And he's telling me, you got to stand still, man, because they'll, they'll shoot you. You got to be mm-hmm. careful, right? So we stand there, they search us, uh, they turn us around, and then another vehicle pulls up shortly thereafter. Squad where, car? Um, y- yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. It was, a, it was a, a mock vehicle, I can recall. A mock vehicle pulls up. The two uniformed cops get out, and from the back of the car get out two uh, Jewish men. I say Jewish because they were dressed in Orthodox garb. Mm-hmm. They get out. And the cops ask them, is this them, meaning me and my buddy? And they say no. 
um, and they get into the police car. The police car pulls off. The detectives pull off, and we're just like standing there, like, really? They didn't acknowledge that they just threw you up against the wall, and no, they just, they walked away and left us there, basically, mm-hmm. right? And then you know, after further investigating, after further you know, letting my mother know, and you know, the whole issue, we found out that at the same time as we were running for that bus, those two gentlemen that were in the back of the vehicle were in their store a little bit further up. Mm-hmm. Uh, two men came in with a gun and robbed the place. Okay, so description was two black guys. Sure. So you know, you do the math. Two black guys. We happen to be two black guys, and we're running from the bus. And you know, that made sense. Now, fast forward where I am right now. I get it. Yeah, I was. I actually wanted to ask you about like how you got from that moment to where you are right now. To that moment, I I get why they may want to stop us. I mean, I was also assuming that the description given by the victims was more than just two black guys. I'm hoping that, you know, in hindsight, there was a description with clothing that made them want to stop us too. But I also, you know, that notwithstanding, I get it. You may think that we have done something because you just got a radio call that said that somebody got robbed and two black guys did it and they're running. Mm. I get that. But you got to tell me that though. You got to tell me right then when I'm being let go, what happened? Explain to me what happened. And I might get it then too. I get it now. When they do explain it, as you said, when they do say, you know, this is why we stopped you. It doesn't really make people feel better. Well, you know what, though? Because you're violated, no matter how you explain it. But what we know from studies that have been done from, uh, like, Tracy Mears, who's a PhD and a friend of mine mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Uh, Yale University, did a study on, on just that, on stops. And it comes down to a term we're using now called procedural justice, right? So to the extent that you have to do that as a police officer, given a radio call that says male black wearing a suit like mine with the exact same time, I mean, you know, what's the odds of that? But let's say the radio call is that you got to stop me just tell me that mm-hmm. you know and I'll get it Coming up, we talk with a law enforcement leader who's dealing with these issues on the ground, the interim director of police services in Memphis, who told us he took some hits for marching with Black Lives Matter protesters last week. You know, there's some who are are questioning, uh, Director, uh, why would you march with uh, Black Lives Matter's protesters? Well, the first thing I tell them that uh, I was born black. A conversation with director Michael Rawlings after the break. This is Code Switch. Support for this podcast and the following message come from iTunes Movies with the Sundance hit Sing Street. From the filmmaker behind Once, Sing Street transports viewers to 80s Dublin as seen through the eyes of 14-year-old Connor, a schoolboy who starts a band to win his crush's heart. Steeped in the vibrant rock trends of that decade and inspired by director John Carney's own life, Sing Street is an invigorating reminder that music can transcend the turmoil of everyday life and transform us into something greater. Sing Street is available July 12th exclusively on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Code Switch. And if you'd like more podcasts in your ear holes now, check out How to Do Everything. It's a survival guide for all of life's trials and tribulations, like bear attacks, romantic conundrums, and romantic bear attacks. There's a chance you'll find it helpful, but you'll definitely enjoy hearing about other people's problems. Find it now at npr.org podcasts and on the NPR One app. 
You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. We're back with our conversation with Michael Rawlings. He's the interim police director in Memphis, Tennessee. He marched arm in arm with protesters last week. And I asked him how he came to that decision. Oh, that's a, you know, that's a complicated decision. So let me tell you how we got there. You know, we had what I estimated as a thousand protesters uh, on our bridge, on our R-40 bridge, which was, you know, probably one of the most unsafe situations I've ever been involved in in my 26 years of law enforcement. I asked it, hey, guys, we need to get off this bridge. And I appreciate the, the protesters, you know, that were in the crowd saying, Director, we don't want any violence either. I said, well, let's do this together. And they said, well, you go with us. And we made it happen. So we marched from there all the way to the FedEx Forum. So how did the how did the protesters respond to that? This was through negotiation. Uh, I think there was mutual respect on both sides. Uh, you know, you know, I, I've been involved in, in probably every protest that we've had in the city of Memphis uh, since our 1998 Uh, KKK rally. You know, I always tell uh, my staff and my officers that it's our job to bring calm and peace to a chaotic situation. Uh, Some people may have not thought that was the best idea, but, you know, I can take that hit. Uh, We got the bridge open eventually. Uh, No one got hurt, Uh, you know, no property damage. Uh, No one was arrested. And if you look at the bridge today, you'd never know what happened on Sunday night. So, when you say you may have taken some hits for that, what are those hits that you've taken? Uh, you know, there's some who are are questioning, uh, Director, uh, why would you uh, walk and march with uh, Black Lives Matters protesters? Well, the first thing I tell them that uh, I was born black, so I'm an African-American male. Right. I understand uh, some of the frustrations that uh, members in the community uh, have. I'm a career law enforcement official. I've taught use of force and firearms. Uh, I've taught de-escalation techniques. And so I look at things differently. Director Rawlings, there's no secret there is a longstanding distrust between the black community and law enforcement. And as a black man, I just want to know, why did you become a cop? Because I love my community. I tell you what, the only two things I ever wanted to be in life uh, one was a, a, a service member, an Army guy, and the other one was a police officer. So that's all I've ever known. Uh, I think it's one of the most honorable professions that you can do. Uh, we never, we don't choose easy jobs. Uh, you know, as, as we were on that bridge the other night, I could see uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama. And I said, my God, I never thought I would be in this situation. So here I am, hand-in-hand with my deputy director, Mike Rowe, who's a Caucasian man, and we're walking these hundreds of individuals off this bridge. And I said, well, I just hope Dr. King is looking down and saying, Mike, good job. So, Shireen, I had some mixed feelings about that interview. I know you did. I thought his invocation of MLK was sort of kumbaya-ish, you know, a little we are the world. But, you know, in 1965, when folks in Selma were marching and protesting on a bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were attacked by the police. And Gene, just over this past weekend, police and protesters clashed in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And in Baton Rouge, hundreds yeah. were arrested by cops in combat gear. Mm-hmm. So things could have gone really bad on that bridge in Memphis if Mike Rawlings acted the way other departments acted, you know, 
very recently. Mm-hmm. And it would have been on him. Like, you know, he made specific decisions on how to engage with those protesters. It wasn't enough that he was a black police chief. We've seen how in other cities, having black police chiefs, black police leadership or officers on the ground doesn't really stop messed up stuff from happening. Three of the officers indicted in Freddie Gray's death in Baltimore, they were black. The man leading that department was black. You know, Newark, New Jersey. Yeah, Newark has a very diverse police force Mm -hmm. and is under federal monitoring after the Justice Department found widespread violations of people's civil rights there. Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker spent nearly a year embedded with the police in Newark and produced a documentary with Frontline about it. We watched that documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, One of his friends from Howard University, Raz Baraka, is the mayor there now, and he's been trying to clean things up. And in the documentary, Raz tells Jelani he wants his office to gather more intelligence and stop randomly searching young black people from the poorest parts of Newark. That's not how you police. I mean, that right there is racism. But these are black and brown cops. Yeah, so what? Diverse police force. It's not the who did it that make it racism. To me is the fact that overwhelmingly it happens to one specific group of people is what makes it racism. We talked to Jelani by Skype, and he told us there were two main reasons why he wanted to tell this story. One is like this question that we have now, like what does it take to change, to make sure that these kind of problems are not happening anymore? And uh, the other is that I was really legitimately interested in seeing the world from the perspective of police. Mm-hmm. Because for the last four years now that I've been writing about this issue with sickening frequency, I've mostly talked to officers after this sort of thing has happened right. in, in, the wake, in the wake of disaster. So I wanted to talk to people while they were going about their everyday tasks. Did you feel like their answers to your questions were satisfying? I'm thinking specifically of that scene. Shereen and I were just talking about this. Mm. The scene in which the police yoke up that dude. He was walking down the street. He was walking street. home. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. They jump out of the car. They grab him. He instinctively pulls away, as you would do, right? Says, someone... do, don't touch right. me. Please mm-hmm. don't touch me. Let it go. Yeah. No. Right. Don't touch me, bro. Don't touch me. Please don't touch me. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. They throw him on the ground, they handcuff him, um, they said they shouldn't be resisting arrest, they should have complied, that's what they kept saying. When you asked one of the one of the, their bosses uh, later, you saw it show them the video, and you're like, do you think that was a good stop? And he was like, it, it doesn't look good, but it's a good stop. And how do you well, explain that disconnect yeah. between the way that looks and the way it looks to them? Yeah, he said that he couldn't tell because he didn't see uh, what happened at the beginning. And from appearances only, it was a bad stop and so on. But, I mean, I think one thing that I realized uh, in the course of this interaction is that um, the police are very eager for people to... Um, to recognize that it's very difficult to do their job. And they're saying that unless you do this job, you don't know what it's like. And, you know, this is something that you hear from officers frequently. At the same time, I think that the officers were often incapable of considering what it was like to be on the opposite side of an interaction with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got a time and again where you'd see those, you know, aggressive stops. They say, well, you shouldn't back away. We're police. <laughs> you know, why are you reacting this way? Which is strange when, to me because these are officers of color who some of them grew up in this neighborhood. Yeah, it was shocking because 
you know, the police force is majority black and brown. But that didn't seem to enter the equation. And the other thing that happened was a kind of after-the-fact reasoning. If you saw someone who you believed uh, was suspicious, and then you searched them, as opposed to drawing the conclusion that perhaps they were not suspicious, or perhaps you made a mistake, the presumption was, well, this person must have dumped whatever mm-hmm. contraband they had you know, just before I searched them. They were involved in something. I mean, it might have been fairly minor, but it was something. That kind of infallibility means that you can never kind of conceive of having made a mistake. And I think it's a very dangerous place. This is dangerous for any institution to function that way, particularly one that has the capacity to use lethal force. It struck me watching the documentary that, you know, this is a black city with black political leadership, black and brown city council members. Um, mm-hmm. It struck me that the extent to which the cops are their own distinct political constituency um, that has to mm-hmm. be sort of uh, assuaged and whose fears have to be allayed. You can't just come in and say, we're going to do things differently. It's interesting because I talked to uh, Alicia Garza about this. and Alicia you know, Garza from Black Lives Matter. From Black Lives Matter, right. She's uh, one of the founders of that movement. And she is a labor organizer. That's what she does, her full-time job. And she's very much a pro-labor person. And I pointed out to her the irony that the biggest obstacle that they encounter in terms of meaningful reform and policing is a very powerful union. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Fraternal Order of Police in most cities wields a great deal of influence. Um, And if you saw the conversation I had with the president of the Newark FOP, you saw that he was not really willing to relent on anything. That was James Stewart. Right. James Stewart, yeah. yeah. And so at one point, uh, we didn't include this in the film, but at one point I said, you know, the DOJ has come in and found that there were systemic problems in Newark. And I said, really, how many officers are on the force here who should not be on the force here? And he said, none. There are teams that win the World Series and still make trades in the offseason. Like, right. no institution functions that with that level of perfection. But... That kind of denial uh, is, you know, one of the biggest obstacles there. And one thing that uh, James Stewart said was, I'm a fourth generation cop here and we are under so much scrutiny now that we can't do our jobs the way we're supposed to. When you got the cop out, out there in the street facing all this negative opposition day in and day out, does there come a point when the police officer is going to say, hey, you know what? Maybe he doesn't have to go to jail. Maybe I'll take the path of least resistance. Maybe I'll put the blinders on as I'm driving by the corner where the 10 guys are hanging out. You know, is that what the community wants too? That's a kind of ongoing thing. And we saw that even in New York when there were concerns around Eric Garner and, and, you know, police were kind of saying, well, you'll have to either take this kind of policing or you won't take any of it, which is, I mean, it's almost like unparalleled. It's like if we say to doctors, uh, well, we have this standard for malpractice and, you know, you're not allowed to do this with patients. He's like, oh, well, I just won't operate at all. Uh, but, you know, you have a public trust and you have a pension and a salary and the state has trusted you uh, with the capacity to end the lives of other citizens. Mm-hmm. Like, it's given you that much authority and a concomitant, you know, level of of oversight should come with that. I don't think there's any reason to bristle at that. But, you know, certainly we've seen that happen, not just in, you know, Newark or New York, but we've seen that 
line of argument in lots of places. There's a there's a moment in the Frontline episode in which you are explaining to these two police officers, who are both officers of color, um, about your first encounter with the police when you were a teenager. You were coming home, you had a baseball uniform on, a bat, a glove, um, mm-hmm. and you got, like, yoked up by a cop who threw you against a mailbox. Um, yeah. And you told them of another experience you had in which you were with your boys and the cop, a cop drew his gun on your and, yeah. and asked you to sit down or asked you to... To get on the sidewalk. Right. Walking, like, on the edge of the street. He pulled out his weapon to make you comply with whatever he needed you to do at the time for his safety and other officers' safety, even for your own safety. You could point your weapon mm-hmm. at somebody and give them commands to mm-hmm. comply. Mm-hmm. Once you feel like the, the threat's neutralized, like, you know, they're complying mm-hmm. with you, then you put your weapon away and, you know, you have a normal interaction. Have, have a normal interaction. I mean, can you really have a normal interaction if someone's pointed a gun at you? I don't... I don't... You got to look at it our way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they said there was five, six males and one of them possibly has a weapon. Mm-hmm. What would you do as a police officer? Mm-hmm. You encounter a group of males. One supposedly has a weapon on them. How would you confront the situation? So I'm curious, like, having had that experience with police and you spent all this time with the police in Newark for this... Like, how did those two things inform each other? It really depended on who I was talking to and on what day I talked to them. Mm -hmm. So I talked with one officer who worked homicide and whose son had been a victim of homicide in Newark. And Mm -hmm. his uh, death remained unsolved. And so she was going to communities and knocking on doors and telling people that their loved one was not going to be coming home. And she understood more than people could uh, recognize what it felt like to be on the other side of that. And, you know, you go through that saying, as horrific as experience as that is, I'm glad this person is doing this work. And, you know, then on the other hand, I would talk to people who I just think didn't get it, that, that did not seem to recognize that based upon any reasonable interpretation of the Constitution, you can't simply uh, treat everyone that you encounter as a suspect with impunity. Uh, and you know, there were some people who you talked to and you got the impression that you definitely did not want to be pulled over by that person. Right. So it really, it really was kind of a mixed bag. One thing that I noticed Roz Baraka brought up a couple of times in the documentary was that I'm dealing with issues that are bigger than mm-hmm. police culture. And then you got generational poverty, generational unemployment, these buildings have been vacant for 30, 40 years. So they didn't just get vacant when I became the mayor. Did you find it frustrating to have to tell this story and not be able to get into those other issues? Yeah, it's kind of like the ball of yarn. Like, where do you where do you start you know, yeah. to, to unravel it? And, um, you know, one of the things that I've said, and you know, people have been taken aback when I say it at first, is that, it's entirely possible that we've placed too much emphasis on policing. Even though we see these spectacular incidents and we see these like horrific things that happen, we certainly should be concerned about policing. But the problem is not policing. <laughs> the problem is the status, the overall status of the people who are being policed uh, and their relationship to lots of other institutions. So we see in a horrific and public fashion the yield of bad police work. We don't see the yield of bad educational systems in the same way. We don't see the yield of that poor housing, um, of lack of employment options, or poor health care, 
of all the kind of institutional failures that happen in many of the communities that we're talking about. And so therefore we say, well, how can we fix policing? And it's overwhelming to say, how can we fix the overall relationship of this entire group of people to the society in which they live? Jelani, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Jelani. That was Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker. His PBS Frontline documentary is called Policing the Police. You need to watch it. Yeah, you really do. It's so good. Yeah, it's really, really good. All right, that wraps up this week's episode of Code Switch. Our producer is Walter Ray Watson. Our editors are Alicia Montgomery and Tasneem Raja. And a special shout out to the Code Switch squad that put in work on this episode. Yes, sir. Thank you, Leah Danella. Haley Blassingame and Erica Cruz Guevara. You can find us on Twitter at NPR Code Switch. Subscribe to our podcast and we want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. We're back next week. Be easy. Peace. Peace.